Welcome to season nine of Interdisciplinary, where we are discussing information and research still. It is still season nine, so we're still here. Uh, this season is in support of our symposia, Within Reach, the quest for information and research, being held at the end of February in your living room, bedroom, dining room, whatever works for you, in your pajamas or formal wear, whichever you prefer. Early bird pricing is available now in the link in the show notes. And this season of Interdisciplinary is still brought to you by the lovely people at ABMP. ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Warner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Today, we have back with us Dr. Matt Hudson, who is the Director of Cancer Care Delivery Research at Prisma Health. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure to see you all, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, Dr. Hudson does, um, like I said, cancer care delivery research. He has a PhD in in evaluative clinical sciences and a master's in public health and behavioral science. Um, I would like to talk to Dr. Hudson today, which we discussed a little bit before we started recording, about um, research and sort of how it's hard and how that's important and good and how with massage therapists, there is a tendency to um, sort of dumb down research and its process um, in order to make it more palatable for people. And I'm a big fan of um, telling people what's really going on and encouraging them to do it because we can all do it and we all have to do it together if we're going to do it. So Dr. Hudson, my first question for you is um, how wait, how hard? Oh, Carrie's got a, a question. I oh, I'm so sorry. Where's your pun? I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I got oh, so excited. I'm sorry. Oh. You know, I get excited about <laughs> research, Carrie. I do. I do. All right. So here's my pun. It's a research pun. <laughs> of course. My pun is. What is a researcher's favorite chewing gum flavor? What? Experiment. Ah, rib shot. <laughs> right? Oh. Well, I had a I came with a stats pun. Oh. Why do teenage girls only ever walk in groups of 3, 5 or 7? Because they literally can't even <laughs> Ah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Very nice. So, back to My the apologies, dear stuff. listener. Back to the heady stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, uh, I'm going to change it up a little. Actually, um, why do you like to do research? Why do I like to do research? Um, mm-hmm. Before I answer that question, it, it might be good to center us and and really define 
research. Uh, and I know that there's an aspiration not to quote unquote dumb things down, but I am, I am a, a proponent of addressing the most fundamental and essential elements in, in a discussion. And so uh, first, let me define research. First, it's at least for me, it's a systematic investigation uh, that's designed to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge. Okay, and those are, there's two elements embedded in the definition. First, the notion of being systematic. That is, we articulate precisely the steps that we propose and we duplicate that uh, step every single time, right? That's, that's what I mean by systematic. The second is that the information we generate should be generalizable. Uh, what I mean by that is that we can learn something from a specific instance and use that to develop a generalizable truth about the way the world works or the way a phenomenon presents itself, okay? So I think it's important to keep that in mind when we think about using the term research. We're trying to execute uh, uh, steps that one can replicate to make sure that there's no variation uh, that is responsible for the outcome that we observe. And the second is that what we observe, we can use to help us better understand what's happening in the world. In addition to the definition of research, there, there is a, a fundamental characteristic that, that I think I, I wanna make explicit from the outset. Um, and I feel the need to make it explicit um, because when one does not make it explicit, um, we can make ourselves vulnerable to, to making egregious errors or conducting uh, an investigation in an unethical manner. Okay. And so my aspiration for all of the research as I've defined it is that it adheres to three principles, the notion of justice, beneficence, and respect for person. And when I use the term justice, essentially I mean that the individuals who um, may be providing data in your research have an equal opportunity to both benefit from it as well as uh, uh, incur uh, any uh, potential risks that may be involved, however slight. Right, so you want to make sure that there's a proper distribution of benefits and risk to the individual and to society when you're contemplating conducting research. The other notion is beneficence. That is, not only are we invested in ensuring equitable cost and benefit ratios, but we're always trying to look out for the, the, the common good and the individuals that are participating in research, right? So it's maximizing the benefit of, of individuals who are participating in the community at large. And then finally, respect for persons is important. Um, this is related to the notion of um, reinforcing individuals' autonomy, right? That an individual, um, as, as much as we are interested in, in having information from a person, we respect the fact that they may choose at some point to remove themselves from study. And we have to respect that. 
Um, and we also have to be uh, attentive to um, inviting individuals to participate in studies uh, primarily when they're best positioned to refuse. And if we are soliciting individuals who don't have a significant amount of autonomy, for example, children, we have to take special precautions to make sure that, that we are demonstrating respect for those individuals that are participating in the study. Okay, so, so in summary, research is really generalizable and systematic. And then we have to really adhere to these tenets of justice, beneficence, and respect for persons. To my mind, that is legitimate research. Whenever you have, quote unquote, investigations that lack any of those elements, I strongly consider not calling it research and calling it something else. So I wanted to make sure that I, that I, I set the tone for our discussion today. I, what do you call it instead? Well, uh, I suspect that there are all sorts of um, legalese um, uh, for for those for those terms, um, but but I'll be generous and say that the inquiry involved um, may be insufficient to address both the uh, the welfare of specific individuals and the common good. Maybe that's a more diplomatic way of saying it. That's very diplomatic. I'm very impressed, actually. Very diplomatic, yeah. Yes. So why do you enjoy it? Why do I enjoy it? Um, yes, I hope you enjoy it. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm glad that you assumed that I would enjoy it uh, and because it's, that's very much uh, the case. Um, I think it stems from uh, an aspiration um, related to generalizability that, that I discussed. Um, I am, and as and more so as I grow older, I am increasingly invested in seeing the world as it is, not how I imagine it to be. Um, there, there are a number of uh, colloquialisms that I, I can't remember where it stems from. It, it, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's Mark Twain. I don't remember who said this, but it's it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for certain that ain't necessarily so. <laughs> I love and that. and along those lines, then I seek to reveal the truth to which we are all subject for myself, selfishly speaking, um, because I would rather see the world as it truly is than to labor under a delusion that in and of itself, I think is disadvantageous. There's a value to knowing the truth in and of itself, but obviously uh, uh, a distortion of the truth or a misperception or misunderstanding of the truth can lead to all sorts of grave mistakes that will ultimately um, that will ultimately do you in um, as well as the, the common good. And so it's my way of not only uh, ensuring that, that, that I am subject to the truth, but, but my charge uh, as a doctor of philosophy is, is to ensure that I'm revealing the truth um, for the population uh, that I serve. So that's why I like research. That's a great answer. Um, yeah. You said increasingly as you got older, is there anything 
like any memory or any story that sticks out as a time when you started realizing that that was that was like the absolute pinnacle of what you were trying to do is to find what is oh um well i think that there's all sorts of uh personal journeys and spiritual journeys that will that will take somebody in that in that direction um and and not that the academy or or any sort of scholarly pursuit is separate from that um but speaking within the context of of education i i think i the 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 structure of the, the scientific method, developing a research question, um, uh, making an observation, developing a research question, uh, testing a hypothesis, that, that sort of process uh, appealed to me. Um, and, and being able to document the steps that brought me to a conclusion that I would draw, um, I'm struggling for a word, but there's a romance to that for me. There's a there's a simplicity to that. There's a clarity to that um, where um, it also when there is disagreement, it provides a, a context to explore disagreement. Right. Um, and and if an individual uh, duplicates the steps that I elect, well, first they can decide that the steps that I've taken um, are are not appropriate or or, or an error, uh, and we can have a discussion about that. Or um, if one decides to elect those steps, they should draw the same conclusions that I draw. Um, it's a matter of transparency, and maybe that's you know maybe that's why I'm using the the term romance or romantic. That there's something. Um, that, that revealing something about your thinking is, is an intimate process and it's a way of sharing that with somebody uh, and, and allowing uh, a dialogue to develop uh, based on some concrete information about how we're trying to think through the way the world works. Does that make sense or is that a little too verbose and heady? I think it's wonderful. Yeah, you, 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 asked, you asked me a, yeah. a question a sort of took me off guard because it, 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 you, you really struck to the heart of revealing something about me and the way that I think about, uh, uh, research that it's, um, that there's an intimacy for me that, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm committing myself to, to doing this and trying to think through a problem or an unknown as clearly and transparently as possible. And, and it means a great deal to me. Um, I love that you use the word romantic and intimate. I think people think that researchers are very stoic, I guess, and maybe closed off. But the process of seeking absolute truth and a description of what is and not what you think is, you have to be so vulnerable to all kinds of things and all kinds of conversations and all kinds of details that I, I think that it is terribly romantic. That's an incredible thing to overcome and to take up, to choose to do for the rest of your life and to devote so much of your time to well, and energy. And, and, and You know, now, now that you think of it, I think uh, Heal Walls, um, one of their tenets is to um, 
to generously listen. Do, do I have that correct? Yes. And there's, and there's something about research that requires one to genuinely listen, that what you want to do is present yourself to the world in a, in a manner of um, trying to understand what the world is telling you, right? And trying to absolve yourself of preconceived notions one might consider that uh, to be adopting the null hypothesis if we were talking in in, um, <laughs> in research parlance, right? But but that you you want to present to a circumstance, making an assumption that there are no differences between things or between people, and that there is evidence that has to intervene to cause you to change your way of thinking as opposed to making the assumption that A is different from B and trying to find information to confirm that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I guess, and, and, maybe, and maybe it might not make sense to, to our listeners, um, but, I'm, but, but it, it just occurred to me that, that there's, that there's um, a philosophy about Hewell that's undergirding the discussion today that, that may be motivating uh, inquiry about research moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, forgive me, both of you, if this is getting too into the weeds or, you know, too specific about study design, but I think particularly when we design massage therapy research, and I, I'm guessing this must be part of any delivery of care research, um, there's always a fight about controlling for therapist effect. And, you know, we, we seem to kind of, as a profession, get, get split into two groups of those who come down on control as hard as you can for therapist effect. And mm-hmm. I, I belong to the other camp, which is that therapist effect is part of what makes the intervention effective. And so right. I'm, I'm curious about what you see in, other, in research of other sort of care delivery. Yeah, uh, th- there are uh, discussions similar to that happening in other domains. You know, your 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 stance. I have a lot of thoughts running into my my right now, so so I'm going to try to dissect these and 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 I hope you'll be patient. Uh, what what you are outlining is is I think not only common but a um, one of these historical challenges within the domain of research. It's this notion of, and I'm putting this in quotes, internal validity versus external validity. Now, let me define those terms here. Um, And and I'm going to give a sweeping sort of generalization here. When one uh, tries to... um, when one tries to affirm internal validity, it's, it means that the researcher has designed a study such that if one observes an effect, that effect can only singularly be um, the result of the intervention that's being studied. Okay. Now, External validity relates to the notion of trying to understand whether an intervention works 
under typical or real world circumstances. Okay. I've set this up as a dichotomy. It truly is not right. It truly is not, but, but I, but I want to separate these issues to, to, to have a, to, to, to form the basis of a, of, of a, of a longer discussion. Right. So, so how does one achieve internal validity? Typically when they're looking at internal validity, you want to ensure that um, you restrict any differences among the individuals who are exposed to an intervention, right? So let, let's just simplify it. You make everybody the same age, nobody is sick, um, they're, they're the same ethnicity, the same socioeconomic status, the same gender, on whatever, whatever um, variable that you might consider, everybody is the same. You're trying to homogenize a, a, a test group. And the reason you want to homogenize a test group is because when you expose in some individuals to the intervention and others not, you implicitly convey that there are no differences between these two test groups, apart from one being exposed to the intervention and not. Okay. That is ideal if you want to understand whether an intervention is efficacious, right? Whether an intervention itself works, okay? And that is necessary, right? Because if we didn't attend to efficacy, we would be entertaining a lot of uh, interventions that didn't work at all, right? Um, so in theory, we determine whether an intervention is efficacious when we have high internal validity, okay? But what's the problem? The problem is that out there in the real world, you have different ages, different genders, different races, some people sick, some people ill, there, and any number of factors that make one person different from the other person, right? And the critic may say then, well, if, if you have all of these differences operating within a group that is exposed to an intervention and one that is not exposed to an intervention, if we observe the how outcome, how then may we conclude that the intervention was responsible for the outcome when we have oh so many other things that could explain that outcome, right? In, in truth, what we want to do is balance internal validity with external validity because they're both they are both equally essential to guiding us on a decision about an intervention's effect, right? Um, when we undertake a study that's calibrated for internal validity, um, we have a very stringent inclusion criteria. When we're exploring external validity, um, we have a, a slightly more lax inclusion criteria because we want to make sure that we're understanding whether this intervention works under ideal circumstances. That essentially is a more pragmatic, you might hear researchers talk about pragmatic research designs or pragmatic uh, 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 inclusion criteria because they're trying to get to whether something works in, in real world clinical practice. Okay. In a perfect world, 
what one would be able to ascertain is whether an intervention works under ideal circumstances first, that they would have established efficacy. So for any uh, uh, massage therapy intervention, um, you would determine that it is efficacious with a very specific group, a, a very narrowly controlled group, um, and, and that, that it would have revealed a difference um, that, that leads one to conclude that the intervention is efficacious. Then you would proceed to the next step and say, now that we know that this intervention works under ideal circumstances, does it work in the real world, which in many ways is less than ideal, right? And not only does it work in a less than ideal circumstance, but you also want to know for whom it may work, right? Because it, it may work well with individuals who are 43 years old, but does not work as well for individuals who are 25 or 75, right? That I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but what I'm trying to do for, for our audience is, is make a distinction between internal validity of a study, external validity of a study. And I'm going to argue that both of those are very important. Uh, and in a perfect world, we would establish efficacy through internally valid studies and then subsequently execute uh, uh, an externally valid study that allows us to deduce an intervention's effect um, in real world circumstances. Did I answer your question? So, I mean, I think part of the trick of the research that we're doing at, at, at HealWell anyway, is that part of what we're trying to investigate and um, is the, the, the efficacy, if you will, of a highly trained massage therapist. You sure. know, I, it is widely agreed and accepted that rubbing is good, <laughs> um, but the, the presence of another trained provider in a healthcare team who is trained in a different discipline than the nurse, the PT, the OT mm -hmm. works in concert with them. What is the value out of that? Sure. Um, and so I think that this is where we run into that, that exactly what you're talking about, that sort of tightrope walking sure. about internal and external. Sure. Sure. And, and, and relative to and now I'm doing this on the fly here, but I'm trying to think through your problem and say, um, is the is the outcome of interest the particular intervention that is the process that a therapist uses, or is it this sort of um, gestalt or this general expertise that a massage therapist brings to bear as a member of a care team? that contributes to more globally to, to the outcomes that patients experience. Yeah, I think this is part of the trick is that I would say Healwell falls into the latter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that it is, but it's of course much easier to sell people <laughs> on, on the former, right? That mm -hmm. here's a very strict protocol of rub in this way, in this area for this amount of time. And as you said, for a controlled amount of time with a controlled subject. And that I think that those are basically just researching different questions. But I think when we, as a profession, when we start talking about massage therapy research, there doesn't seem to be, 
I don't see a lot of people who are who are willing to accept that both of those things are necessary types of research. It right. seems like we sort of fall into these separate camps of yeah. no, no, this is where our money and time should go. No, no, this is where our money and time should go. Well, and I I I don't have a quick answer to that quandary. Here's what I would offer. Um, because what you're touching on is where is the value added? Uh, and and so in order to answer that question, you first have to define value, right? Which takes you down a whole a whole other road. Um, but but what I what, what I'd argue relative to a research, uh, um, the, the context of research that we're d- discussing, um, that simply articulating, where one has information and where one does not have information is a contribution to the science. There is no single study that is going to answer all questions. It's it's impossible, right? And so I I, I suspect that you would agree that research is, is essentially you are building a house one brick at a time. Right. And the, and the trick is to make your brick as sound as possible, right? And to carry the metaphor further, it doesn't take many fragile bricks for the whole structure to fall down, no matter how strong the other bricks may be, right? So, so metaphorically speaking, we want our research to become the cornerstone of, a, of, a, of, a, of an infrastructure. Um, and I'm hoping that the discussion we're having today will will um, calibrate people's interest toward toward that end. We talked about added value and how defining the term value is complicated for many reasons. I think it's particularly complicated in healthcare because everybody's on a slightly different side um, and going for slightly different outcomes, depending on whether they're a person who owns a hospital or a person who is staying in a hospital or a person who is working in one of those situations. Um, your research, I have a couple of um, papers that I nabbed from your CV. Um, provider perceptions of interpreta- interpretation services and factors related to the use of ad hoc interpreters, which I think is an amazing title, by the way. So um, when you do your work, which is about care delivery, or at least right now it is, what kind of ad value are you looking for? Because I don't think, I don't think you're looking for necessarily the, like, we just cure people answer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, first I want to be clear specifically to the, to the manuscript you reference. I am one uh, person on a team of individuals that were responsible for that scholarship. So I wanna make sure I'm, I'm giving uh, the proper credit to, to the co-authors there. I know that's not your point, but I always like to be transparent Absolutely. about that. Um, so what is it that my, my research ultimately aspires to, to advance? Um, I am invested in advancing patient-centered welfare. Right, and so um, loosely we can we can term this as health and wellness from the perspective of a patient, right? And and I would say that my research focuses on the infrastructure and instruments 
necessary to advance a patient-centered wellness charge, right? So I'm, I'm interested in understanding how healthcare provider teams and the black box with itch, within which they work intermingle to produce patient-centered outcomes, right? And so for me, that requires um, contemplating, participating in studies that don't singularly ascertain whether treatment A is better than treatment B, right? Is Coke mm-hmm. better than Pepsi? It, it has to do with understanding how providers deliver that care in a manner that advances patient aspirations and how we devise an infrastructure that facilitates clinician and patient teams um, relative to the outcomes of interest, right? Do they have the resources? How do they use them? Uh, are, there, are there equally important but competing uh, circumstances or agenda that, that complicate patient-centered care? That these are just a, a, a few of the questions that someone who, who is interested in multi-level intervention research that's patient-centered would ask. So ideally, the, the, the added value is twofold. One, uh, patients receive the care that produces the outcomes that matter most to them. Right. And loosely speaking, that would relate to quality of life. Right. So ideally, we, we, we would want to both lengthen life and have that life be better of better quality. Right. Um, the second aspiration is that once we provide care, that they never have to get sick again in return. <laughs> right. That, that, that ideally we do it once now. That's a that's you understand that I'm speaking in the extremes here, uh, and so so let me be let me be more practical. My secondary aspiration is that an individual is not returning for the same clinical malady for which they were treated previously, right? That and and there's only so much of that that you can control by virtue of doing something in this black box called a hospital, right? Um, that the, in theory, one, and I'm putting these terms in quotes, in theory, the healthcare system can do something right to a patient, but that patient has to go back out in the world and they are vulnerable to the sociological and environmental circumstances that portended their need to engage the health system in the first place, right? Um, And so one of my interests and aspirations is trying to figure out how to manipulate the environment beyond the health system in a way that helps individuals sustain their health once they exit the health system, thereby making it less likely that they'll return for the same malady that, that portended their visit in the first place. Can you give so some examples? If I could accomplish that, that would be a major value added. Right? I wholeheartedly agree. Um, can you give us some examples of the external to the hospital manipulations that you would try to enact? So I would, I would, um, I, I don't want to personalize. I'll speak, I will speak generically. Um, so 
um, it is not uncommon that you find uh, health systems that fund walking trails within the community, right? Now, why would a health system do that? Because they know that uh, sedentary lifestyle and obesity um, are two risk factors for diabetes, right? And we also know that it, it can get very complicated to treat diabetic patients. And once someone becomes diabetic, it, it becomes incredibly difficult uh, sometimes to, to manage them in a patient-centered fashion. And so the, the health system is attempting to manipulate the external environment to make it more conducive to the public's health, um, thereby mitigating some of the, the need to engage the health system in riskier and costlier procedures. And then that, that's just a, um, a, a general example. And I'm trying to think of some others and maybe during the course of our discussion, one will pop back into my head, but that's, but, but to me that that's the, the most immediate um, and probably one of the more common ones that are you, that our listeners might find as, as they go about their daily uh, duties and of walking through their community, it's possible that they find um, um, opportunities where uh, health systems have, have seized an opportunity to, to be more proactive in shaping the, the environment of the community uh, for, for the patients they serve. Now, I'm not saying that that happens in every community, and we can get into a larger or, or sociological discussion about how care systems choose communities uh, to allocate resources, right? Um, I, I would like to believe that every health system makes these choices predicated upon where there's the greatest need. And I choose to make that assumption. I'm, I'm gonna make that assumption and, and ride with that assumption until, until someone provides me evidence otherwise. Well, you know, this makes me think of um, Dr. Cynthia Carter Paralot's uh, organization, which the name of which is going to escape me. It's the Alameda County something or another. Um, but she has a nonprofit that uh, basically they uh, they work with faith-based communities, with churches, sure. to create a slightly more organized version of what churches have already done, which is right. if somebody's sick take care of them, give them a ride, help them out. Um, right. And they, uh, the first year that they started, they got a, a small grant from Kaiser. Um, and they just did a ton of data collection during that first year. And again, it, it I, I'm mentioning this because there's all kinds of things that get me excited about this. Uh, <laughs> um, but they had such incredible outcomes, uh, particularly with regard to people not being re-hospitalized, people who are living with right. chronic illness. Right. And that Kaiser actually made them a budget line item and that that's a major part of their funding now. Um, and so a couple of things to, to your point, just about where are you investing your dollars as a, as a healthcare provider, but also about the difference we, that you sort of alluded to at the beginning of the conversation about research versus this other thing like just collecting the data. And, right. and then, um, so I'm just interested in your thoughts about that, those as different things. Um, so, so help me to make sure I'm understanding those as different things, meaning um, 
the the collection of data that could be used for self-serving reasons versus the collection of data uh, for the public's welfare and for the common good. More, is, more, is that the distinction? No, I guess I think I think more that they didn't start. This wasn't like a research project that started with a hypothesis and started with a you know outcomes. Right. Uh, they they basically just collected data on a, an existing program. Sure. Uh, and then, I mean, after the fact, you could certainly use that data to publish yeah. a paper and do something. But yeah. that design, I guess, of data collection. Yeah. yeah. So um, let me see if I'll take a shot at answering your question. Um, it, it is true that that research questions um, uh, don't develop naively that they that they can develop based upon an explicit need or pressing demand right and and that is no less um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know that that's any less noble than than the the scholarly approach to to the scientific method um, I, I think that in the context of healthcare, some of what motivates um, uh, some of what motivates inquiry is um, I'm trying to think of a, a diplomatic way to say this. Um, there, there's an aspiration to keep the doors open to ensure that that hospitals advance their mission. Their mission is to provide patient care and treat patients' illnesses, right? Um, and, and we know now that the government has taken a different tact to reimbursing uh, hospitals for the procedures that they've initiated. And, and just to give some of our listeners who, who may not understand the subtext, I'll speak in a speaking a sweeping generalization here. It used to be that uh, the government, for individuals who had uh, government-related insurance, it used to be that the government would pay whatever bill that uh, that the patient incurred uh, in the result in the consequence of their treatment, um, but the government now is starting to cap that in any number of ways. And, and one way they may say, the government may say to a hospital, we've made an observation about the patients that you've been treating for disease X. And we see that by and large, disease X costs $100. Here's what we propose to you, hospital. Upfront, we will give you $100 to treat individuals with condition X. If you manage to treat that patient well for less than $100, we will pay that and allow you to keep a portion of that money. So if it ends up costing the hospital $93 to treat that patient, the hospital can keep $2 and return the other five to the government. If, however, the hospital 
finds that it costs $105 to treat that patient instead of 100, the government will say, well, hospital, that's on you to find the extra $5. We're not paying you anymore. Okay. It wouldn't surprise people to find that the money that the hospital will, the, the money that the government will pay a hospital is not enough to offset the cost of caring for a particular patient. Consequently, it's incumbent upon the hospital to figure out how to provide the best care at the lowest cost. And that fundamental question may drive a lot of research that a health system undertakes. So if we're talking about diabetics, it may be that the government says, we're going to give you $100 to treat diabetics. And the hospital says, well, geez, Louise, we, it costs us $115 to treat diabetics. And the government says, well, you better figure out a way to get it, uh, get, get it to $100 because you're not getting another $15 from us. And so the hospital goes back into their office and they say, now, how in the heck are we going to effectively treat a diabetic for $100 when we know that it costs $115 to treat them? And somebody pipes up and says, well, one thing we should do is try to make it less likely they're going to be diabetic in the first place. Ah, and how do we go about doing that? Well, maybe we'll look at, look at our piggy bank. We were saving this money to buy another five or six beds for the hospital. Maybe, maybe we'll put that money toward building a walking track somewhere in the community where people will feel safe, where some people can access it easily, and perhaps the people who are the most likely to become diabetic will not become diabetic simply because they have a place to walk, right? Um, and I, so forgive me for that long soliloquy and that, and that metaphor, but I, I was trying to think through how to convey what healthcare systems are challenged with um, uh, and, and how those challenges inform the type of research that they are engaging in moving forward. Because if you were to speak to a lot of uh, health care providers years ago, they would say to themselves, the best way to promote health is to make a better doctor. If we just teach doctors how to do surgeries better, we will produce better health. Clearly, we've come to find that producing a better doctor is advantageous, but it doesn't always lead to better health because there's so many other factors outside of the health system that are responsible for, for getting a patient in and causing a patient to return, right? So, so making a better doctor does not, um, does not keep a patient from returning. It simply ensures that they're going to get good care when they get here, right? So... I remember as a kid growing up that like both my parents are in healthcare and there was definitely the idea of better doctors, better nurses, better healthcare. That's how it goes. One plus one equals two. This is the right. way we do things. And as I've grown beyond seven years of age, um, I think it's fascinating how many different ways our thought process turned on how to treat people and what treating people means 
and what's effective for treating people. So to sort of circle back around to the massage therapist add value stuff, we're arguing that highly trained massage therapists add value to healthcare, but not necessarily in the one plus one equals two manner. Sure. That having massage in a hospital not only makes the patient's lives better, but it makes the staff lives better. It makes parents of patients' lives better. And um, when everybody is a little less stressed, <laughs> healthcare right. works a little better all right. of the time. Well, well, and I really appreciate your your framing uh, about the pressures that hospital systems face, because I think it's very easy to imagine them as, first of all, a monolith, whereas hospital systems are very different, <laughs> um, but also that to imagine it as just a sort of money-making enterprise and like the fault of capitalism and uh, uh, what, what it does to healthcare. But I think it is really interesting and, and important to for all of us to kind of keep in mind how these external and internal pressures shape research and the way that we collect data and are thinking about what is the quote unquote best right. way to so, do it. And, 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 let, and let me interrupt you on that point. I don't know. Okay. I'll say what I was going to say. I don't know if the quote unquote, the way we collect data may change the type of data that we collect may change now. And now that I've said that there may be instances where the way we collect data may change, but, but I, the reason why I balked at that statement was because um, the, the, uh, well, you know what? I don't know why I balked at that statement. I had a visceral, I had a visceral reaction to that. And, and what came to my mind was, the type of data may be the issue as opposed to the way that we collect it. Right. And, I think and that's fair. Yeah. But, but I can say that there are some ways of collecting data that are more reliable and valid than others. Right. But that's, I think that, that, that the aspiration would be to always have reliable and valid data. I'm, I'm getting tripped up on a finer point that doesn't detract from your, your general point, but I, I tend to do that sometimes when I talk about these things. I'd, I'd like to throw another log on that fire actually and point out that the data you collect may not be reflective of what you thought you were collecting of the purpose of the data collection. So with massage therapy, we've been basing many things on the pain scale for a long time. And we have discovered that it's not necessarily the best measure of how a patient is doing. So we have started using other scales right. because right. maybe that thing that we were asking that seemed very sensible to give us the answer we were looking for, maybe that's not giving us the answer we were looking for at all. Right. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase you down the rabbit hole here and say, so part of the, so, so when one finds the circumstance that you just outlined, one rhetorical, it's not a rhetorical question, but I'm making a rhetorical question. It's, did you ever think to ask the patients what it is that they value, right? We as providers make this assumption that, that X 
is what patients care about, right? And when we make that assumption, then we start collecting data on that. And we realize that no matter how sound those data are, they don't address the quote unquote real question that we wanted to ask. That is a failing of the study design, not the execution. And the study design in theory should have included asking patients what it is that they value, right? I think, I think we missed that in healthcare for a long time. Oh, we most certainly have, and still miss that in healthcare. We 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 still. I think we're getting better at it. Um, but I I in a lot of ways, um, I think that the immediacy of circumstances um, uh, re require we we perceive there to be an immediacy that demands an answer. Number one and number two, we already think that we know the answer. Now this goes back to the 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 generous listening, right? That we're not listening generously to our patients if we are making an assumption about what it is that they value. Do you think that this also speaks to what has historically been a kind of hierarchy that the notion that quantitative is better than qualitative or that there's something sort of squishy about qualitative research? Um, yeah, I, I, I always, um, I always balk at that. I always think that that's, um, it is, is not a sound way. It's a false dichotomy, number one. And number two, to classify qualitative information as soft uh, or, or less sound, I think is, is, it's a, it's a disservice. Um, I, I would argue that that any limitations of either quantitative or qualitative analysis are primarily owing to the user, not the tool itself. <laughs> right. So that's that's the that's the first thing. Before before I before one can entertain the discussion, I'd say, well, let's make sure that we get everyone who would be considered experts in in these domains, so that we neutralize the. Um, the, the criticism owing to an individual's capacity to carry out the work as opposed to the, the, the tool itself. Um, but I, but I, and so along those lines, I, I think that it is disadvantageous to use quantitative data to answer qualitative data, or excuse me, qualitative questions. I think it's disadvantageous to use quantitative data to answer qualitative questions and disadvantageous to use qualitative data to answer quantitative questions, right? And so the, the, the challenge becomes um, matching the question to the right data collection process. Which I think can be trickier than it sounds. I, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't disagree. I, uh, um, I read Patton's Qualitative Research and Evaluation Methods textbook because I do those things for fun. And you talked about being boring. So, you know, I'll match you. Um, don't say that because I don't think that that book boring. is so good. Yeah. So good. Um, but I learned so many things about qualitative research and how complicated it really is and how um, we keep coming back to the word squishy. And it's it's kind of that it's squishy, but I think the problem is more that it is difficult to 
put into words the things that you discover in qualitative in a way that answers both your questions and does justice to the data that you gathered and to the people that you gathered it from. So a good chunk of that book was about how, not even how to, but that it is an issue to interpret qualitative data at all and to particularly interpret in a way that is useful. Um, and I think that that also scares a lot of people <laughs> who yeah. may actually enjoy the process, but it's um, it's a lot to jump into that isn't numbers yeah. and graphs and tables. So, so how, so I, I'm going to provide a suggestion and then make an observation in response to what you said. Um, I think we'll just sit, stick with the, the, the qualitative analysis right now, but this is true of, a, of, of any analysis, I think. What, what one has to do is explicitly articulate the method, right? This is the process that I used to understand these qualitative data, okay? I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, okay? Based on these steps, I have drawn this conclusion, okay? Now, if I were if I were a critic, right? If I was if I, if I were reviewing the the study, the first thing that I would check is whether the methods were sound, right? Forget about the conclusion, right? Whether it's whether the methods are sound, right? And what I mean by sound is, does it appear that this person did the same thing in the in, in the context of their study, right? Did, did, and if I replicated this study. Could first of all, could I replicate the steps? Is it possible for me as an outside observer to replicate those steps? And if I replicated those steps, would I draw the same conclusions? Right now. So that's a statement. Now, here's the observation. Science is not value free. Right. And so this is true of both quantitative and qualitative data, but the my way of being, my way of seeing the world is the prism. It's the lens through which I am viewing these data. Okay. And so, and so on some level, we're, we're not going to be able to, I, we, we can only maybe reduce subjectivity, you know, um, because fundamentally, what we define as a research question is predicated upon something that 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 comes from within me and my experience, right? So deciding what it is that's worthy of uh, was what's worthy of investigation is a subjective decision, right? That's predicated upon my values, right? And I'm going to analyze the data through that prism, right? Um, and and I suspect that that most people would do likewise, that they would view the data through the prism of their own experience, right? Um, that's why I think it's all the more important to make sure that the methods are sound or at least replicable, right? That, 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 that you are being transparent about what you did to acquire those data, what you did to analyze those data uh, and 
and that you isolate the discussion to the interpretation as opposed to the means by which you collected the data. That's just an observation that I'm making that, that based on your comment, but I don't know that it tightly connects with your comment. It's just in the course of our discussion, it, it, it stimulated a thought about that. Well, I love it because we are big fans of dissuading people from reading an abstract and thinking they know what a paper is about. Um, <laughs> and I really, I do, I feel like when I have, the the papers that I have read that have been the most compelling are the ones where the method section section is sort of the most compelling yeah. to me. Right, right. The moral being, don't don't skip the method section, guys. Don't skip the methods. <laughs> it's very no. important. And when you're writing your paper, I will say, like, as somebody who has gone through that arduous process, like, it's easy to sort of, uh, to imagine that that would be the easy part of the paper. Like, we'll just bang out the methods. Uh, and it leads to an a ugly paper. Right. So, so, to, so, so to your point, to my mind, there are three critical components of a method section. Um, number one is the participants, right? It behooves one to know who participate in the study. And I don't just mean their socio-demographics. You, you want to try to understand the population from which you've gleaned those individuals, right? Because that's going to inform how you interpret the data, right? So that's the population. The second are the instruments that you want to intimately describe the instruments you used to collect the data, right? And that in your contemplating those instruments, you may become aware of strengths and limitations of the instruments that may be very important when it comes time to interpret or explain your results. And finally, the procedure, describing the actual process by which you obtained the data, right? Because there's a story about how it is that you come to acquire information that may be as important as the information itself. All three of those elements allow a person to understand the conclusions you've drawn and can inform subsequent discussion, right? That, that a person may say, well, I don't agree with those conclusions. I suspect it may have to do with whether or how they collected the data or from whom they've collected the data. And we can have a discussion about that, right? That ideally a manuscript is intended to provide the community of scholars a platform to have a deeper discussion about the generalizable truth you're trying to elucidate, right? Did this research get us closer to knowing the truth about this phenomena or, or, or not, right? And, I, and, and as you stated, I think a lot of that can be found in the methods section. I'd like to point out to the listeners that um, when Matt talks about instruments, he doesn't necessarily mean things that click or beep or have lights. Um, instruments are also things like surveys. Um, which can be tested and standardized and validated. Thank you for that clarification. I agree 140%. And I personally, I love <laughs> I love the surveys. I think that's fascinating um, how you can mislead somebody with a question that you thought was totally fine 
Right. It's not the turns tool, out. It's the user. Yep. Right. <laughs> yep. Right. Um, well, thank you, Matt, for coming back to talk to us today. Wait, wait, that's it? There's, there's nothing. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I very much appreciate the, the opportunity to, to join you and the listeners today. Um, I, I, I wish there was more questions. If you had more questions. Um, oh, I always have more questions. <laughs> oh, oh, we'll have, we'll, we'll have you back. You're, you're, you you're stuck with us now, Matt. You're, you're well, one of our, one of our regulars. Uh, I, I am honored. I'm only hoping that, that the information that I provide is useful. And actually, you know, I, I would encourage our, our listeners to not take anything I say at face value, please. The, the, the community of scholars requires that you, you question, you, you, you curiously question anything and everything. Um, and I am completely open to being wrong. It's happened many times in my life and it might happen a, a, a few more. Uh, and so I, I welcome the, the respectful and healthy dialogue and debate. That um, topic will be on our slate of topics for the February symposia. Just to remind you, we have a February symposia. Um, so scholarship as conversation is one of the topics, which is the idea that conversation is part of this whole thing, guys. Like, And it's really important that you participate in it. Um, it's not just about reading the research and it's not just about doing the research. It's also about talking about all of it. Um, so we would love to hear from you, listeners. We would. Um, Love to have any of your questions come in and we'll do our best to answer them. You can email us at podcast at eol.org. Um, you can join us in the community. We have conversations all the time there. Some of them are very funny and some of them are very serious. And um, we, let's see, what's going on in the community right now? We're going to have a Reading Rainbow Book Club in January where you bring a book you've already read and tell everybody about it because we're all very busy and there's so many books to read. Um, and there is some chatter of a journal club. So if that's something that interests you, please absolutely write in and let us know and or come to the community and yell at me about it. And that'd be great. I'd love it. And if you um, love this podcast so, so much that just listening to the podcast is not enough for you, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash interdisciplinary and get even more content, even more of Corey and Cal and Carrie and Rebecca in your ear. And every once in a while, Matt sticks his oar in the water. That's to... right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. 100%. <laughs> Interdisciplinary is produced by Heelwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at That's podcast at Thanks for listening. <laughs>